This episode is brought to you by IT Revolution, whose mission is to help technology leaders succeed through publishing and events. You're listening to The Ideal Cast with Gene Kim, brought to you by IT Revolution. If you haven't listened to the last two episodes where I interviewed Steven Spear and played his 2019 and 2020 DevOps Enterprise Summit talks, I recommend you go listen to those first. In this episode, I do a follow-up interview with Steve, where I got to ask him some even more basic questions, where I continue some of the explorations I started with Elizabeth Hendrickson. I ask, is it really true that leaders have fewer and fewer knobs to turn as they get higher up in the organization? And what are the implications? Why do we see this ever-increasing complexity and the need for specialization in the world, and what does it mean for leaders? I asked him to share more personal accounts of his interactions and observations with the Honorable Paul O'Neill, who was CEO of Alcoa, who built an incredible culture of safety and performance during his tenure. I asked why do we see this ever-increasing amount of complexity in the world and need for specialization, and we talk about and explore further the structure and dynamics of the famous MIT beer game. I'll just say now how much I am dazzled by the clarity of which he sees the world, and I think it is so relevant for all leaders. Here's the interview. Steve, one of the most surprising things I've relearned and has been reinforced over the last couple of months is, in some ways, the limitation of the leader to do what needs to be done. I mean, I think in a certain point of my career, I thought if uh, one were king or queen, they would have control over everything. <laughs> and they could, you know, given all the authority and the broader perspective, that they could make anything so. However, what is obviously more true <laughs> is that, in general, the person best suited to making decisions is the person closest to the work. And uh, they tend to make better decisions than distant authorities <laughs> who have a more and more distant view of the actual problem. Can you uh, validate that uh, claim that this, uh, leaders, as they get more senior, they actually have fewer and fewer knobs to turn. Does that resonate with you? And if so, why? I think some people like to think that we exist on a flat world. And in fact, we exist on a world with a very, very varied, rugged topography. What I mean by this is that a flat world is homogeneous. And that no matter where you observe that world, you can have a full enough and complete enough understanding of how the world works. And with that, the complementary full enough and complete enough reach into the world at any point to affect how it behaves. And, you know, of course, since we're all egocentric, affect how it behaves in ways that accord with our desire and will. But the problem is the world is not flat and smooth and homogeneous. It's actually really heterogeneous with this very varied and rugged topography. Now, here, here's the problem with that, is even if you can see a location, seeing it and understanding it may not give you the necessary insight to act effectively in another location because the other location is different. So if that's the situation, if you need a varied action-reaction to match the high degree of variety variation, that's characteristic across your topography, then rather than having one actor who's acting on the whole thing, what you need is uh, actors everywhere tuning the localities based on what the local circumstances are. And here's the other part, 
opportunity not only to what the local circumstances are, but consistent with what the system objectives might be. Now, you start thinking about this is a, this is a CPU problem, which is if, um, we do, if we did, we don't, but if we did live in a, a flat topography, then um, the person who's looking down at the whole thing would have the computational space to figure out what to do in one location and then just spread that out. But as the topography gets varied, as you go from uh, sort of one topography to two, you've doubled the, the computational problem. When you go two to four, you haven't doubled it again. Well, maybe you've doubled it again, but that's only if the, two, the four nodes are now um, still independent. But once the nodes become uh, interdependent, um, you haven't um, doubled and doubled your computational problem. You know, you've gone up you know, orders of magnitude now. You know, it's two to the n growing very, very quickly. And so when you start getting to a very varied topography, there's actually a, a very limited amount relative to everything that has to be known that someone sitting at a way elevated level can possibly know. And in fact, speaking of elevated levels, the metaf metaphor, and I've been working this, you know, this, uh, this topography one, ring, rings up the issue of mountains. So it reminds me, there's uh, an account in the Bible. So I'm going to go back to God on this one, you know, <laughs> right? So it's after Mount Sinai, and Moses is sitting there, and this long line of people waiting for his decisions. <laughs> and his father-in-law comes along and says, Moses, what the hell are you doing? You got this whole line of people. And Moses is saying, well, you know, they're coming to me with this problem and that problem and this thing and that thing. And they're lined up all day and Moses is worn out. And his father-in-law says, well, what the hell are you doing it by yourself? Why don't you teach some other people to solve local problems? And they get into this in the Bible. It even says, he says, you know what you really need to do is you got to get, you know, groups of 10 and a leader for the 10. And if that guy can't solve the problems for the 10, um, take... 10 groups together so he can elevate the problem to the hundred and then the hundred to the thousand. And Moshe, you worry about the general stuff. You know, you worry about the general stuff and, and let, as you get closer and closer and closer, let those other folks worry about the specifics. And so you start seeing like, you know, Moses, father-in-law, this guy, uh, Yitro, right? He's already thinking about this idea that you got a very, very topography. You got hundreds of thousands of people wandering around in the, in the wilderness. And what's going on in one tribe, the true tribe of uh, Reuben is different than the tribe, what's going on in the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, who knows what the hell they're up to. And so you got to have this distributed decision-making problem solving. And, and your job, Moses, is to set the tone, what, what are the terms by which you define a problem? What are the terms by which you, you, you accept the solution? What are the terms by which you move between problem and solution? That's your job. And, and let all these other folks behave to the local idiosyncrasies according to the general guidance you're providing. And uh, anyway, so this goes way back in society. So this is not a novel situation where, you know, we've invented things on silicon with aluminum and all of a sudden, whoa, you know, the dude at the top can't see and do everything. You know, it goes way back and, uh, you know, it gets back to this basic issue is that the world is a varied place. I mean, really varied. And that's what gives it its beauty and its interest and in all of that. But it, what it does mean is that uh, that senior person doesn't have nearly the bandwidth, nor the capacity, nor the speed to determine what should happen everywhere. All they can do is create conditions in which people everywhere can arrive at a set of conclusions, decisions, solutions that are not only locally appropriate, but collectively consistent.
And that's what the leaders got to do is create the environment where you get the, the local appropriateness and the collective consistency. So you've spoken uh, so beautifully about your experiences with uh, Paul O'Neill, the recently departed Paul O'Neill and, and his work. But before we go there, let's, let's take it from the Moses example to, let's say, the assembly line at Toyota. One of the things that you paint very vividly is that the person who is experiencing a problem is at that moment the world's expert in <laughs> that problem. Right. Can you talk about like how is it possible and to what degree it would be difficult for the, the first line supervisor, a second line supervisor to to know what the right answer is just by experience? Can you even dispel the notion that you know the first or second line supervisor just by experience would know the answer better than the person actually experiencing the problem or solving the problem on the front line? Right. So here's the thing about problems. If someone had a complete and full understanding of a situation, there wouldn't be the problem. Because it's tautological, like a problem is a bad thing. And if you had complete understanding of a situation, then uh, you, you would make the right actions not to have the problem. The fact that you do have the problem reflects your lack of understanding. All right, so the problem emerges. Now, at that moment... Who understands something? Well, it's the first person to experience the problem because they're aware of its existence. And uh, perhaps they're aware of some of the subtlety of its presentation and so on. And so when they call for help, they may call for help from someone who's got a deeper experience and deeper expertise and that sort of thing. And their ability to gather data, process data, arrive at a conclusion may be better. But in, at, at that first moment, the person who understands the situation the best is the person who's stuck in it. Now, at, at, at zero plus delta, the expert might start recognizing what's going on and say, whoa, you know, I've got expertise experience to draw on. But at, at zero, it's the, the person experiencing the problem. And, and Gene, just by, by way of metaphor here. Look, you know, we've all had issues where we've had ailments where we feel it's necessary to go to get clinical care. I mean, I've never really walked into a, a clinical office and said, well, I'm the expert on this or that ailment. Uh, I am the expert on the experience, though. You know, so when I went to a doctor because my ankle was bothering me, I knew more about how that ankle was bothering me than anybody else in the world. Now, why it was bothering me, I didn't really have a clue, <laughs> which is why I went to the doctor uh, for an examination, diagnosis, and treatment plan. Well, I later had to go to physical therapy to uh, put that treatment plan into practice for implementation, as it were. But the experience, I was the world expert on the experience of having that pain. And so where you end up with this is not that it's either or, but it's uh, both and. That when the problem is detected and, and experienced, that person has a lot to add to the conversation which is a complement to and complemented by the person who has sort of the uh, the expertise and the kind of the basic thinking, the fundamental science, to help the the diagnosis and help the uh, generation of a treatment. So suppose you have uh, the best first line supervisor, second line supervisor. Uh, one can easily get to a point where you know, given enough surface area of people having problems, it would exceed their ability <laughs> to, to, to solve on their own. At, at some point, you need distributed problem solving, you know, even at that uh, first line, let alone second, third, fourth line. Right. Does that uh, resonate with you? Is 100%. That Gene, this is why um, you have organizations like Toyota, which are so deliberate on developing their group leader core. And just to you know, put it in context, you know, the way this works is you've got your associates who are doing the wrench turning and the welding and all of that stuff. 
And there's a huge investment in getting them to be capable of um, seeing and solving problems that are very, very local. And you have uh, team leads who their skill is uh, developed to not only solve more sophisticated problems, but at least be capable assisters in uh, solving problems by the associates. Within the, the Toyota system, the group leads. Now, these are people who in the military would be uh, senior non-commissioned officers, you know, chief petty officers, that kind of thing, you know, 15, 20 years experience. The burden on them is not only to have um, really deep, sophisticated problem-solving skills for problems that have sources which are more complex and varied, but they also have to be great educators in terms of being able to uh, develop the skill set of the team leaders and the associates for whom they're responsible. And, and the reason Toyota feels that is such a source of power for their system and the reason they, I think, um, worry quite a bit about group leaders, you know, or the process of developing group leaders is not only a, a source of power, but a, consequently a, a source of vulnerability, is that in the absence of uh, really skilled group leaders who have sort of experiential knowledge, technical knowledge, and are really capable coaches, the system falls apart. And then all of a sudden, you, not all of a sudden, but you get to this point where if problems aren't being uh, seen and solved at the local level and they're not being seen and solved at the team lead level, and they blow through the group lead level, if that level is not well developed, then you start getting the managers having to deal with everything. You get back to the Moshe problem, the Moses problem, right? Which yeah, is, right. you know, so, you know, fortunately Moses took the advice of his uh, father-in-law Yitro when he started cascading, you know, his knowledge and skills down to much greater numbers. And because of that, then he got to deal with the really big issues like succession to Joshua. You know, that's the kind of a big issue, <laughs> how to deal with the, the Moabites and the Amalek and that kind of thing, right? But those were system issues. If, on the other hand, he had been unsuccessful in developing and cascading expertise and responsibility down to the tens and the hundreds, he would have been back to where he started, which was a, a line of the a line of many, many people queued out front his tent every day, waiting for him to tell them what to do. Gene here. I have two thoughts I'd like to interject. One is around what managers know and don't know. I remember a time early in my career at Tripwire, around 1999. It was my first time being a first-line manager and then being a second-line manager. I remember one of the first challenges was shipping our first couple of commercial releases out the door and the challenge of figuring out what we could ship by a certain date. Looking back, I remember thinking how many times I thought I knew better than the team about what could be shipped by a certain date. You could dismiss some of it as just the naive, wishful thinking of a new, inexperienced leader. But some of it went far beyond that. So two decades later, I'm thinking about just how much more the person working on a certain code base knows than the person who doesn't. In fact, on so many things, I'm the only person working on a particular set of code. And if I leave it alone for four months, <laughs> I basically don't know anything about it at all. So with that perspective, I'm a bit stunned by the notion that a first-line manager thinks that they would know better how to do task estimation than the people doing the work. And then, of course, a second-line manager thinking they might know better than the first-line manager or the team itself. This is belied by the fact that whenever it comes to actually implementing something in code or fixing defects due to that code, or, and of course, estimating tasks related to that code really should be and can only be done by the people doing the implementation. In other words, due to the rugged topography of the problem, the people best suited to solving a problem are the people closest to it. 
This validates the concept from the book Team of Teams, where you put authority close to where the information is, as opposed to bringing information to where authority is. The second thing I want to interject here is this amazing NPR Planet Money episode that recently aired called Summer School 2 Markets and Pickles. In this episode, they interview numerous members of a national food bank. In this case, it's the person who is in charge of a food bank in Alaska. She was complaining that they got a truckload of pickles, and it was because the centralized system sent it to them, specifically because of the high shipping costs associated with shipping fresh foods and vegetables. So often they were stuck with things like truckloads of jars of pickles. And it turns out they weren't the only city having this problem. The head of the food banks in Idaho was complaining that they received a truckload of potatoes, which is pretty funny because potatoes are primarily grown in Idaho. So they always have a surplus of potatoes because they're donated to them all the time. Long story short, new management comes in who proposes creating an internal marketplace to better match supply and demand with the help of some academic economists. This causes some problems because many people who work in the food bank system feel that it is capitalism and markets which failed them and are what created the need for food banks in the first place. But even they are eventually won over by the internal system they create. Imagine a system like eBay, where each food bank is assigned a number of credits based upon the number of hungry people they need to feed. Each week, when food becomes available, each food bank can then bid on the food or save it for the next round. It's this amazing story to hear about how everyone seems to benefit and how thoughtful people are about which foods they want to acquire and how they save and bid accordingly. Some foods like pickles that are undesirable actually have negative prices, signaling that no one wants it but will take it if paid back in the appropriate number of credits. Cereal commands high prices because it has a long shelf life and is so versatile. What caught my attention is how effective pricing signals enable the right allocation of resources, getting scarce resources to where they are needed most, and how it so dramatically outperformed the centralized planning model. They even said exactly what Steve just said. The maximization problem can be computed, but it's one that is in practice almost impractical because of the computational space required. They even use those words. The person at the top never has enough information to make all the right allocation decisions. That the internal topography is so complicated, so full of nooks and crannies of hidden information that things like internal marketplaces need to be created. This is a topic that is not totally clear in my head yet, but I think it's so important that I will be revisiting it again soon. When you go back to the interview, I'm going to ask Steve a question about Paul O'Neill and his achievements at Alcoa. I mentioned Paul O'Neill a couple of times, and I thought it warranted describing specifically what some of his breathtaking achievements were. I'm going to read some of what I wrote in the DevOps Handbook, which extensively cites Dr. Spears' work in his book, High Velocity Edge. Consider the following example that improved workplace safety at Alcoa, an aluminum manufacturer with $7.8 billion in revenue in 1987. Aluminum manufacturing requires extremely high heat, high pressures, and corrosive chemicals. In 1987, Alcoa had a frightening safety record with 2% of the 90,000 employee workforce being injured each year. That's seven injuries per day. When Paul O'Neill started as CEO, his first goal was to have zero injuries to employees, contractors, and visitors. O'Neill wanted to be notified within 24 hours of anyone being injured on the job, not to punish, but to ensure and promote that learnings were being generated and incorporated to create a safer workplace. Over the course of 10 years, Alcoa reduced their injury rate by 95%. The reduction in injury rates allowed Alcoa to focus on smaller problems and weaker failure signals. 
Instead of notifying O'Neill only when injuries occurred, they started reporting any close calls as well. By doing this, they improved workplace safety over the subsequent 20 years and have one of the most enviable safety records in the industry. <laughs> I quote Dr. Spear. He writes, Alcoans gradually stopped working around the difficulties, inconveniences, and impediments they experienced. Coping, firefighting, and making do were gradually replaced throughout the organization by a dynamic of identifying opportunities for process and product improvement. As those opportunities were identified and the problems were investigated, the pockets of ignorance that they reflected were converted into nuggets of knowledge. End quote. This dynamic of learning helped not only increase safety, but also created competitive advantage, leading Alcoa to become one of the most admired organizations in its industry. And during O'Neill's tenure, the market cap of Alcoa increased from $4 billion to $28 billion in 13 years, a 900% increase. All right, with that knowledge, let's go back to the interview. You got firsthand observations of seeing this theory put into practice with the Honorable Paul O'Neill and what he did at Alcoa as he set out to create an environment where there were no workplace injuries. And you shared some revelations about his philosophies and how he put that into practice of if the job of the leader isn't to make all the decisions and make all the right calls, he viewed his job as different than that. Can, can you talk more about what he viewed his job is and how it evidenced itself in terms of what you saw? Yeah, I, th- I think you know Paul probably viewed this as uh, his job was to set standards, both standards in terms of what the goals were, um, standards in terms of not only direction of the goals but distance for the goals. You know, one of them being safety for everybody all the time, and uh, then setting the terms by which those goals were pursued. You know, and I think, you know, in Paul's mind was that if he clearly articulated not only in word and memo, but, you know, in action and practice, that the system goal was a perfection and that a perfection should be relentlessly pursued and that the means of pursuing it was through the regular energetic recognition of problems and the resolution of problems, they would keep moving in the right direction at the right pace. And that it was too big an organization for him to have solutions to even a few individual problems, let alone all of them. But he could. He could create the context in which the, the brain power of the workforce was engaged and not just the brawn power of the workforce was engaged. And just to chime in, what are some of the elements of that rugged topography? High heat, corrosive chemicals, huge, heavy pieces of round things moving around the floor, right? This is a very dangerous environment. Well, it was a dangerous environment. The thing I would offer is that it was dangerous in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. Because you had um, plants doing different types of work, creating different types of product, you know, from the way, way upstream um, operations of mining raw material through smelting it, refining it, et cetera, et cetera, to giving it shape and then shipping it. So you had... Um, Many, many different locations. Inside a, a site, you had many, many different processes. Those processes were being run by many, many different people because you got into the thousands and thousands of operators. And so um, the experience of one operator in one location was uh, different from the operator across the aisle, let alone the operator across the world. It was a, a very, very uh, rough, varied, uh, jagged topography. This podcast is brought to you by the 2020 DevOps Enterprise Summit Las Vegas, which will again be a virtual conference due to the global pandemic. 
Holy cow, last month we held our first virtual conference, which was amazing. I'm so proud of the programming we were able to deliver for you. And I was so blown away by how many people said that it was even better than attending the physical conference. We are planning to put together an even more amazing program for you, which will be on October 13th to the 15th, as only 11 weeks away. I will have some more exciting news to share with you in the weeks to come, but I am confident that it will be the best programming we've ever put together. For seven years, we've created the best learning experience for technology leaders, whether they're experience reports from large complex organization, talks from the experts we need, or through the peer interactions that you'll only find at DevOps Enterprise. You can find more information about the conference at events.itrevolution.com. So you start thinking about what Paul O'Neill did is uh, first he set context. He said, you know, what we're going to do is uh, pursue perfection on workplace safety. And as collateral benefit for doing that, as we uh, see and solve problems that present um, physical hazard and risk, we'll recognize what we don't understand about these very dangerous processes. And uh, as we uh, come to a better recognition of what we don't understand and convert that into competency, not only will we move the needle significantly on safety, we'll move it significantly on um, yield, quality, cost, et cetera. So that, that was the context setting, right? Which is these are our goals. And the way we're going to achieve those goals is make sure that um, when we have problems, they're recognized, they're respected, and they're addressed. All right, that's context. Paul did something else. And this, I think, starts getting into the, um, the structure and the resulting dynamics. Is that uh, Paul insisted that he find out what had gone severely wrong uh, directly from the business unit president, not through a report, uh, not through a, a publication, not through a memo, but through a call. Uh, so the, the first structural element was Paul being connected directly to his direct reports. And um, what that cascaded into is that if a, one of his direct reports could know quick enough, fast enough to tell Paul, let's say within the 24-hour limit, that something serious had happened, he had to be connected uh, directly to the shop floor. Now, again, if you start thinking about the layers and layers and layers of authority and supervision in Alcoa, um, a business unit president couldn't be directed to all of the shop floor all of the time. Again, computational overload. Um, so what he had to make sure is that he was connected directly to his direct reports and they were connected directly to their direct reports and so on and so on, all the way down to the associates on the shop floor being connected to and able to signal essentially immediately their immediate supervisors. So in terms of um, structure, uh, Paul recognized that you had to set up a structure which was um, not a horizontal connection of um, start to finish, but a vertical connection of start to finish with the start being what's going on on the shop floor and the vertical connections up layer by layer by layer by layer till boom, it connected to Paul O'Neill. Now, once that structure was in place that he was connected to the, you know, if he's the level N and then N minus one, N minus two down to the shop floor, then uh, that creates the opportunity for the dynamics he wanted. And the dynamics he wanted was the um, near immediate recognition that something had gone wrong and the um, near immediate response to that recognition to figure out why so that things can be made right. Hmm. 
So anyway, the creating the, the vertical connectivity, I think, was the structural response in order to create the dynamic that he wanted of fast, frequent, uninterrupted, highly distributed problem recognition and problem resolution. And it's interesting to, to expound upon that, right? So not only did he set up that structure, but in the previous episode, we were talking about certain structures that suppress, potentially suppress or extinguish weak signals. Uh, he put out that, right, uh, if you don't get the response from your leadership chain, call me directly. <laughs> in one of his talks, he uh, said that this was during a time of you know immense tension between uh, unions and uh, plant managers. This was an unprecedented thing to do, especially for a CEO of uh, a Fortune 500 company. Uh, it seems like this was uh, another mechanism he created to make sure that he was getting the feedback uh, into the system yeah, you know, it's, it's, Gene, it's a really interesting point, right? What he did was he put an andon cord on top of his andon cord. Yeah. And what I mean by this is that, um, you know, ideally everything just works the way you want it to work and you don't have problems, you don't have to call things out. But given that's not the reality of our experience is that nothing works the way you want it to work. So you have to call it out and you have to call it out early and often. So how do you do that is that you give... Um, authority responsibility to the person who uh, might be the first one to experience the problem to call it out to uh, um, the person who's supporting them. And that person has authority responsibility to call it out to the person supporting them with the idea that if you call it out and it can't get resolved, you call it out to the next level of responsibility, authority till they get it resolved. And eventually it should, you know, if it has to, um, if no one else can, uh, pull the resources into solving the problem, then Paul O'Neill has now got the authority, but the responsibility to make things better. Now, um, what his concern was, um, and it was a concern informed by the experiences people reported to him, is that that series of sort of uh, and on cords, and on cords, pulls for help, wasn't working all the time. And so he instituted an overlay on top of that, which was, look, if that whole escalation mechanism is not working so that the problems that you recognize aren't being resolved, then uh, call me directly. And when you call me directly, what you're telling me, yeah, what you're telling me is that you've got a problem that's uh, affecting work on the shop floor, the carrying of a heavy ingot manually rather than on a conveyor, et cetera, et cetera. But what you're really telling me is that the escalation process for the purpose of um, recognizing and resolving problems, the escalation process has broken. And since I, as CEO, have um, taken responsibility for the escalation process, I need an end on cord myself to know that that process broke down and not just the technical process, which is introducing risk and hazard. Right. And let's go to maybe one other, uh, such a memorable example of behaviors that Paul O'Neill uh, exhibited that also reinforced the dynamics that he wanted. I mean, I think uh, this showed up in the Unicorn Project. It was taken from uh, your book and one and uh, Paul O'Neill's talks was, uh, you know, flying down to the, I think it was a plant in Arizona after an 18-year-old employee was uh, killed, uh, you know, by a, a boom inside of a uh, some machinery. And right. uh, it seems like the it was so clear as he tells the story that he felt his job was to make sure that everyone felt responsible, that not just remorse, but to that everyone had a role in uh, the conditions that led to the accident. I think his words were, we killed uh, that 18-year-old kid, right? Uh, I killed him. We all killed him, right? We trained him in the procedures he was going through uh, that led, led to his death. Can you talk about that? 
Yes. Yeah, so uh, th- this gets back to the um, what can the senior leader do? And, uh, you know, what we kind of agreed on is that the senior leader can't solve all the problems everywhere all the time. There are just too many problems with too much uh, subtlety and nuance for um, anyone to solve more than a few problems on any given day or week. <laughs> um, now, in, in terms of setting the context, what Paul tried to do was establish that uh, it was the responsibility of leaders to set the, uh, the direction and uh, the distance. You know, we're headed in the direction of uh, safety and the distance is perfect, perfect safety. And um, the means of getting there, which is the regular uh, recognition and resolution of uh, problems when there's still risks and hazards and before there are injuries and deaths. Now, um, the account you're sharing was from very early in his uh, tenure as CEO, where he found out that uh, a young man, um, when a machine jammed, he jumped a protective uh, barrier to unjam the machine. Well, you know, it's a spring problem, right? Which is once he removed the obstacle, the, uh, the machine, which had you know, now tension loaded into it, you know, uncoiled and, uh, and hit and killed him. Now, um, what Paul did in that instance is said, look, you know, our job as leaders is to set the context in which everyone else operates. And uh, so if this guy thought the right thing to do was uh, vault that fence and uh, remove that obstacle, then that's the context we created for him, that that was the right thing to do. And if that's the context that um, inspired him and motivated him to do that thing, which uh, led to his death, then we killed him because we, um, you know, we didn't hit him with the boom, but we had it at most second order um, causality because we created the context in which he thought the right thing to do was vault that fence so that he could get hit in the head. And, and the effect, and what was the effect of that? Well, again, this was very, very early on in his uh, tenure. And you start thinking about how a young man dies due to an industrial accident in a hazardous situation. So what are the knee-jerk explanations for that? So one is, well, you know, you got to understand with all due respect we do some dangerous work here where, you know, the stuff is heavy and hot and fast moving, et cetera. You know, that's just, is dangerous here. A human and error. It, it was a technology failure. I mean, those are the classic. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, so you go and, well, you know, and then, you know, well, you know, human error, right. right. You know, we, we, which is kind of spitting on the grave, right? Because, you know, not only is the guy dead, but now you're saying he's dead by his own fault. It wasn't a suicide. And, and so Paul gets in there and he says, look, you know, um, you know, everyone is doing all that appropriate remorse. Oh, I feel terrible for him. I feel terrible for the family, blah, blah, blah. And they should. I mean, I don't want to diminish that part. They should feel bad, right? There was a suffering and a loss. Uh, well, there was a loss and then the consequent suffering by those left behind. But what Paul did is he, he um, disallowed the conventional explanations. He disallowed the blame the victim and say, well, you know, it's human error. Had he uh, been smarter about doing that or not, or more skillful, you know, had he, you know, pulled out the obstacle and ducked quicker, um, he'd still be alive. So it is kind of his fault. That's blame the victim. Or you just blame circumstance. You just blame, yell at the universe. Like, well, you know, this is high hazard and what could anyone do? And Paul um, very quickly took away 
those um, safe pat um, answers and said, no, no, no. Um, we created the conditions in which that young man thought he was doing the right thing. Right. If it was human error, you know whose human error it was? It was our human error to convince him that that was the right thing to do. Right. In fact, I think it was it's my fault. And he flew to that plant with the Alco executives, not just the local plant managers, casting that responsibility throughout the team. Yeah, that's right. You know, Gina, I think that's a very generous way to think about it, right? Because it could have been Paul shows up at the plant and says, you know, yo, you bunch of jokers, you created the environment, you created the context. Um, so it was your human error. But then, you know, when, when, by showing up and saying we killed him, not you killed him, right? We killed him. What he's really saying is, you know, um, the context you created reflected the context I created for you. Yeah. And so that I own this as a CEO, as the, uh, the, C, you know, the, the, the most authoritative, most responsible person in this system, um, I own the context. Gene here. I've been reading about the safety culture at Alcoa going on 10 years now, and it is amazing to see Paul O'Neill speak about them. I'm going to include two links to his videos of his talks that he gave over the years in the show notes. It is amazing to see to what extent he cared about these issues throughout his tenure at Alcoa. In one of those videos, he even says what he is most proud of in his entire career, including his tenure as the Secretary of the Treasury, is creating a safe environment for all Alcoans where they got fulfillment out of their daily work. I highly encourage you to watch those videos. And in the meantime, let's go back to Steve as he continues discussing this topic. You know, actually, Gene, you know, sorry, but, uh, you know, going back to our story about Mo Moses and all is that, um, you know, throughout all the accounts of that one, you know, the 40 years wandering around, he keeps coming back to every time the, uh, the Hebrew people, you know, the sons of Jacob, uh, air, and they're about to get punished. Moses says, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. You know, it's my fault. <laughs> you know, I, I obviously didn't teach them well. You know, you, I, I was the one who enjoyed not one, but two revelations on the top of the mountain. <laughs> I'm the one who's had this uh, direct communication with the uh, godly spirit day in, day out. And yet, uh, if there's a failure, it's my failure. Right. So, I mean, we well, have cultural examples to say that those who are more senior are, are should have responsibility for the failure of those younger and more junior. Um, and uh, that are not delegated away. And um, I, you know, Admiral Rick over said that. Right. Admiral Rick over said that. He said, right. you can delegate authority, right. but you can never, ever delegate responsibility. Brilliant. So I think you've made a very logical and uh, persuasive argument that says the person at the top can't make all decisions, can't have visibility into all the problems, can't be the one solving the problem. I, th I think that's a, you make a very persuasive case for that. Let's go to the topography of the problem. That the, If you look at the, the, the topography, whether it's at Alcoa or within a Toyota plant or the supplier network, it is varied and and deep. <laughs> that the, right. It is hard to imagine an ex expert being several, let alone all of them. I love your example from your book about the 1950s Ford. Uh, in that era, home mechanics could fix most of the issues that you'd find in the car. But now because of computerization and software and probably many other issues, uh, there are fewer and fewer parts that could actually be repaired at home these days and maybe even fixed by the service specialists at the dealership. We talked about in the last podcast episode in the 1950s and maybe through the 70s, 
in the, the healthcare system, there are only a handful of specialties, the most obvious being the doctor you know, who's laying hands on the patient. And uh, now there are scores of specialties with uh, more right. being created uh, every day. And in technology, we see the same thing happening. It used to be developers and operations, but now we have container security, data, not just data, data in Kafka, data in relational databases and NoSQL. You know, there's so many more specialties. So my first question is, uh, why is this happening? And clearly there must be some benefits that we're getting through specialization, whether it's through automotive or healthcare. Can you talk about why this is happening to us? Yeah, look, Gene, I live in uh, New England. And uh, back in the day, Henry David Thoreau went out to Walden Pond and lived a simple life. <laughs> and he was able to live a simple life out there. And uh, you know, he could probably cultivate whatever food he ate through the spring, summer, fall, and winter and uh, you know, mend his own clothes. But I'll tell you what he couldn't do that I can do. He could never eat an orange in February. <laughs> right? I can. I, I can get a delicious orange in February. I can get a delicious orange in July. And the reason I bring this up is that no one grows an orange in New England that I'm aware of, and certainly not in February. Now, the reason I can get a delicious orange in uh, February is because uh, since Henry David Thoreau went out and lived in a cabin at Walden Pond, people have learned a lot about horticulture and growing oranges and transportation to move an orange from wherever it's grown in Florida, California, or south of the equator in February to me here in Boston and refrigeration and preservation and advertising, et cetera, et cetera. The amount that Henry David Thoreau needed to know to sustain himself at Walden Pond was a ton. But he, he had to know a lot about, or he had to know a little about a lot in order to sustain himself. Now, to get me that orange in February, there are a lot more things that have to be known. But you know, today, here in the 2020, we're still working with more or less the same kind of brain that Henry David Thoreau had back in the day. And so you ask the question, well, now there's this much, much greater set of um, sciences and expertises that have to be known and mastered in order to get me that orange every February. So uh, given that we can't jam more and more stuff into you know, same size brains, what do we have to do? Um, we have to engage more brains in order to get me my orange. And so that's where the specialization comes in, right? Because it's just more and more pieces to the system. Um, to create these systems which can do things which people back in the day, they couldn't imagine. They simply couldn't imagine um, systems doing these things. Let's go to the car example. Let's go to healthcare next. But for the car example, uh, you said something actually very surprising to me is that you know, for a given car that you can get at a certain price, uh, inflation adjusted, the car you're getting now is so superior to the one that you're getting in the 1950s. Can you validate that claim? Yeah, so you, you go back when the Ford Mustang was first introduced or the Chevy Corvette before that. Could the competent car owner do a good amount of the service, maintenance, and even repair on the car? Yeah, they could. Um, and they, they could completely ignore uh, the electronics. They could completely ignore the software. And, you know, and why is that? Because that stuff wasn't on the car. <laughs> You know, it, it, it was made of iron, steel. I don't even think it was made of aluminum. Probably a limited amount of plastic, some you know, wood, leather, fabric. Not electronics, but electrical. You know, it had wires and bulbs. You know, so yeah, that was within the skill set of someone. Now, you know, but as those sciences and engineering technologies advanced, and um, you started putting uh, electronics on a car, 
the person who used to say, wow, I can, I can repair my whole, whole car. Well, even with the same skill set, they can now only repair half the car, right? Because they can repair the part of the car that's mechanical, but they, unless they add to their mechanical skill an understanding of uh, electronics, they can't, that's the other half of the value. Now you, you start getting more advanced cars where um, it's not just mechanical and, and electronic, but now it's uh, really sophisticated engineered software. Now you're down to a third, right? You know, you can fix the body and you know parts of the transmission, et cetera, et cetera. You know, someone else has to be responsible for the electronics, and then you have to get someone else in to deal with the the engineered software. And again, it's like the orange, right? Which is a car today is uh, a much higher performing product than a car of the uh, 70s, 60s, or 50s. In order to get that much, much higher level of performance, um, a whole lot more knowledge and expertise has to be um, synthesized into the, the product itself. In order to get that synthesis, you have to have many, many more experts who are making very big contributions. That's not to diminish them, but they're, they're they're big contributions in an absolute sense, but in a relative sense, relative to the value of the product as a whole, um, the value is smaller and smaller. Um, and that, that's just the nature of the beast. But I, you know, in, in some regards, that's a good thing, right? Because now we can drive cars which uh, last you know twenty years if you maintain them, and they give you fantastic performance. And uh, if uh, you know, you have an accident, you're like more likely to survive, certainly than, you know, compared to uh, the past. Um, you think about the functionality of a supermarket, you know, if I went to the supermarket in February in, uh, you know, 1964, 1968, no oranges, lots of potatoes, <laughs> lots of onions, lots of canned goods. But the functionality of a supermarket now is that when I walk in in February, I can get fresh fish from anywhere in the world. I can get produce from anywhere in the world. The functionality is like off the charts. And, and, and the other crazy thing is, Gene, in 1950, 1960, the, the, the supermarket not only underperformed in terms of variety, but it underperformed in terms of price and quantity. So if I lived in 1950, 1960, I might actually worry, as a, even as an American, about having a hungry night because I couldn't afford to get the, the nutrients that I might need. Now, what's our problem in 2020 is that we walk into these supermarkets with the plentitude that's there. And not only is there so much of it in terms of variety, and there's so much of it in terms of uh, volume and quantity, it's so freaking cheap that our concern is obesity, not starvation. <laughs> you know, and, and so anyway, you know, look, in order to have uh, a supermarket like that, the only way to have that is this huge explosion in um, the different disciplines that have to be known and the depth with which each of them has to be mastered. And that, that requires, uh, that creates a huge opportunity and huge benefit, but it also creates um, this integration problem, which uh, was Henry David Thoreau didn't have to worry about integration. <laughs> so let's go to one last example, which is healthcare. And you had this amazing uh, part of your book where you're describing what happened to, say, uh, one of the benefits of specialization, uh, what it drove us towards was if you look at cancer survival rates, 1950s versus now. Can you talk about that and just the miracles that modern medicine is? creating in the ideal, um, and yet the function, the, the integration challenge it also creates. Look, Gene, it's exactly the same problem, right? Which is, look, look we're dealing with COVID right now. And, uh, you know, if uh, COVID had occurred, I don't know, 50 years ago, 
Um, I mean, it is an issue. 50 years ago, it wouldn't have been quite so severe because uh, fewer places were connected with fewer places so quickly. So it might have appeared in Wuhan, China. It might never have gotten out of there, you know, because, um, you know, it takes two weeks for the infection to become uh, symptoms, to become transmittable. But if you can only go, uh, you know, 50 miles out of Wuhan in two weeks, you know, how, how far can it go? All right, but anyway, let, let's just assume that uh, 50 years ago, um, we had all the advanced uh, transportation technology we have now, but not the medical science. So what happens with COVID 50 years ago? We're all dead, right? <laughs> because the disease gets out there. No one can diagnose it. No one can recognize it. There's no treatment protocols developed, on and on and on. But what, what's happening now is that, um, you know, if we would just uh, socially distance, wash our hands and wear a mask, we can buy time for um, all these fantastic advanced technologies to swing into play in terms of um, uh, genetic sequencing of the virus, genetic sequencing of the human being, construction of um, uh, rapid uh, trial um, vaccine um, experiments, on and on and on. And so, um, look, th th this thing eventually will be contained and it will be cured. Um because of the uh, vast expansion and the vast uh, deepening of scientific knowledge. Now, of course, to bring all that stuff to bear, you have to have um, integrative mechanisms for the people in each of these disciplines to um, make their contribution to the larger system of um, diagnosis, treatment, and cure. But I thank goodness for that, right? Because otherwise this thing would be um, the plague, but worldwide rather than, you know, rather than limited to uh, some town in Italy or France or, or England. And so talk about like the orders of magnitude improvement in cancer survival rates, just to put this into perspective of just the vast leaps made in medicine because of everything you've talked about. You know, look, when I was a child, if um, someone you knew was diagnosed with breast cancer, you know, then that's when the hand wringing started because it, it, was, a, it was a terminal illness. And, uh, you know, the question was, oh, you know, what will her experience be? Oh, what will her husband do with the children? Da, 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 da. And, you know, over the years, people have come to recognize that uh, while the symptom may be malignancy, the diseases is in the dozens, if not the hundreds, uh, each of which have their own genotypical, phenotypical presentation and cause and uh, their own treatments. And with that much greater precision as to what the diseases are, which have similar presentation and what the treatments are for those uh, individual diseases, the survival rates have gone, you know, exponential growth in survival and exponential collapse in uh, mortality due to the, due to the disease. Um, I mean, it's just been fantastic. And again, we can, we can check the book for the exact numbers, but, you know, is it a 90% reduction? It's some crazy number like that. And so speaking of Walden, for those who wish for a simpler time, that we want the topography of the problem to get a little more homogeneous, a little more homomorphic, a little, <laughs> a little more generic, is that just wishful thinking? Can you either make the case that complexity is going to keep increasing uh, as the years and decades go by, or is complexity being reduced? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, is the human species going to plateau on what it knows and plateau on the uh, necessary divisions in intellectual labor so that we can have some expertise, meaningful expertise in our field. I think it's hard to predict a plateauing in discovery. 
And for the simple reason or two simple reasons, one is our understanding of the world around us is minuscule. I mean, you just pick up the, uh, the science section of any decent newspaper and they start telling you about these things have been discovered in the universe that no one knew existed. Now, the universe has had a 15 billion year opportunity to create stuff. It's not new. <laughs> and we're barely scratching the surface about what's just barely beyond the, the perimeter of the Milky Way. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of stuff we simply don't know there. And since the universe has had more or less, you know, mankind's been what, around for, you know, a few tens of thousands of years and the universe, is, you know, you know, a dozen billion, <laughs> it's got a quite of a head start in terms of building up a repository of things we don't yet know. I mean, it takes a long time to catch up on the universe. And, and that also seems that our goals don't get any bigger, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. You know, we, we decide that um, there's nothing left to learn and we don't care anyway. You know, it's like, that, <laughs> so no, I, I, I don't see this going, I don't see this plateauing and I certainly don't see it going backwards. Gene here. Okay, that may have seemed like an odd question to ask Steve, but I find his point to be very, very important. The world is getting more complex, and the need for specialization is going to continue to grow. And therefore, the need to integrate efforts from an even wider base of skills is needed. Like it or not, this means that the problems that all leaders will face going forward will keep getting larger, and just staying in one place is actually falling behind. That's a big, big problem that demands better answers, which is why I'm so excited about this quest I'm on to better understand why organizations behave the way they do and why structure and dynamics help us better understand how we can change them to get the outcomes that we actually want. Okay, back to the interview where we talk about the MIT beer game. Steve, another thing that was just a, a genuine pleasure but also an eye-opener uh, beyond words was looking at the famous MIT beer game through the lens of structure and dynamics. So the MIT beer game, of course, was created in the 50s, 60s by Jay Forster in the Sloan System Dynamics Group. It's a, a simple game. Every table is one supply chain. There are four positions, each played by a player, retail, wholesale, distributor, and factory. And every turn, a customer puts in an order and that flows through the supply chain. Everyone orders from their downstream step and the fulfillments come the other way. And observations of the MIT beer game, Fortune 50 executives perform no better than high school students. It's of uh, anger <laughs> that uh, their fellow players don't actually seem to un actually understand the rules. Uh, this bullwhip effect where inventory builds up in the system and soon is uh, swamping the entire supply chain. And, and so, so much of that is embedded in the structure of the game, the rules of the game, the way that players are able to interface with each other and the nature of how quickly inventory ordered from the retailer can actually come back. I asked you this question that I found your answer to be so startling, which is, you know, if you could change the structure in just one way that you think would lead to far better outcomes, what would it be? Acknowledgement. <laughs> you know, as you're describing the beer game, it's fairly simple. You know, it's a simple setup, right? It's very linear. A customer goes to a retailer and says, I'd like a case of beer. The retailer goes to a wholesaler and says, I'd like to replace that case of beer. The wholesaler goes to the distributor, the distributor, the brewery, and says that. And the only change in the entire game is at some point the customer walks up and says, instead of one case of beer, I'd like two. That's it. Now, had it, were everything to work instantaneously, this game would be a simple one, right? I want one, I want one, I want one, I want two, I want two, and you get 
that back. The problem is the system has lags. So um, the first time the customer shows up and asks for two, the retailer doesn't have enough, so the customer's disappointed. And then when the retailer asks the wholesaler, it's not an instantaneous uh, response. It takes a few cycles and so on, and, and there's disappointment. And, and what ends up happening is that when people uh, don't get what they asked for the first time, they start escalating their requests. So the customer, rather than asking for two, then two, then two, they ask for two, but didn't get one of those two. So when they come back, they don't ask for two, they ask for three, and then they ask for four. And this thing just starts to um, amplify and explode. You start thinking about why all that happens, because when the customer shows up to the retailer and says, I'd like two, the retailer doesn't say, here's one, if you just wait and be patient, the other one will follow on a lag of three cycles. Instead, they say, here's one, and the customer walks away frustrated. And when the retailer shows up at the wholesaler and says, I'd like two, if the wholesaler simply said, here's one for now, hold on, the other one that you need, it will catch up, but it'll catch up on a cycle of two or three or whatever it is, the retailer should be uh, similarly patient. But they don't get the acknowledgement. They don't, someone doesn't say to them, hey, Gene, I heard what you asked for. I'll get you what you asked for. Just wait, please. Right. You'll get it in four weeks. <laughs> yeah, four weeks or three, whatever the number is. But um, no need to ask again. I'm telling you, absolutely, I'm giving you a guarantee that um, <laughs> I heard you. I'm working on it as fast as I possibly can. And if you ask me again, it's not going to make it any faster. You're just going to get aggravated. Look, we're having this now. Right? It's COVID, right? So you know, people are used to, oh, same day, next day delivery from Amazon or some others, right? And now they have to wait, ooh, two days or a week even, or even until next month to get something. You know, oh, it's like the end of civilization. But the reason we're not falling apart on that is that when you order something from um, a retailer, they tell you when it's reasonable to expect your order. And they say, hey, Mr. Kim, um, we'll get it to you May 16th. Is that okay? And if you say it's okay, it's fine. And the order is there and you know, you know, May 16th, the thing will show up and, you know, maybe you'll get it on the 15th. But all right, you know, you've been heard, you've been acknowledged. On the other hand, if you place an order and they don't say they accepted the order, you know, one of two things. One is you stop going there or there is you keep calling them. Hey, did you get my order? Hey, did you get my order? Hey, did you get my order? And that's, that's basically the beer game. It's this um, person who's desperate for their case of beer. They get no acknowledgement. They have no other place to go. So they just keep calling over and over and over again. And uh, the system goes out of control. Again, because it doesn't have this acknowledgement, this feedback to say, um, everything's okay, just hold on. It seems like a profound point here. So one of the papers about the MIT beer game, they say the lesson to leaders is to have a calm, detached, unemotional view <laughs> to, to uh, you know trust your fellow players, right? But it seems like a, a more direct, better solution is, uh, I think the key learning really is... Um, uh, change the structure so that it doesn't cause uh, this this terrible dynamic. So that's that's an interesting one, right? Which is supposed to have um, calmness. All right. Well, that's ridiculous. We're human beings, right? So who the hell is calm when they're under duress? So it really is a causality here, which is you should be calm because you have trust. But where does trust come from? Trust comes from experience. Now, I mean, the only reason I trust you is because we spent time together, and you know, I know that in certain circumstances, I know how you're going to behave. Um, 
you know, what's to be expected, uh, what's to not be expected, et cetera. That's where the trust comes from. And that's why I can be calm on a new experience because we've built up this reservoir of trust from past ones. And, and again, if you start thinking about that experience, so what was the experience? The experience was one of feedback that I acted in a certain way and you reacted or you acted and I reacted in such a way that I recognized that there were certain patterns which I could trust, right? So um, it, it seems to me uh, somewhat uh, superficial cursory to say, ah, Gene, don't panic, just trust. It's like, <laughs> yeah, but I got no data. I got no evidence, no experience on which to build that trust. And in the absence of experience to build that trust, what I have instead is a very comfortable, uh, natural panic. So um, I, th I think underneath that advocacy for um, a calmness built on trust, which implies built on experience, what we're really saying is you need feedback. And if you want to get to trust quicker, uh, the way to get trust quicker is to give that reinforcing feedback faster and more frequently. Build those sets and reps early on. That seems to be uh, this other universal Know, truth in the the nature of the structure and dynamics you want to create is that fast feedback, uh, ideally in small batches, that allows for local decision making that best enables the achievement of the global goals. Right, right. Look, we know from Bob Merton and Black and Scholes and all of that, you know, all those people who innovated on the um, option theory, that there's a huge price to uncertainty and a huge value to certainty. And, you know, their, their whole Nobel winning research and explanation of uh, how one prices an option, it's what price do you pay to relieve the uncertainty of a situation? And we see that, I think, in the behavioral sciences, things that people will do, which uh, seem self-defeating or suboptimal, just to relieve the uncertainty. It's at the end of the Dirty Harry movie, right? When he, you know, hey, punk, did I fire five times or six? <laughs> and uh, the right thing for um, the villain in that moment to do is nothing because he doesn't know how many times Dirty Harry is fired, right? But and, and he should just do nothing just in case. But he says, I got to know, I got to know, I got to know. And it turns out it was five times and he gets shot by the sixth one. <laughs> and in some ways, I think there's a very empathetic is a very empathetic response the audience has. I mean, on one hand, they're kind of glad that Dirty Harry shot this horrible character, and there's that that kind of tapping into that part. But also, I think most other people are like, you know, if I were down on the ground after this whole prolonged conflict with Dirty Harry, I, I too would want to know if it was five or six. <laughs> so, you know, I, mean, I don't think anyone looks at that as real ridiculous. As, oh, well, you know, the, the, the killer should have just been patient and calm and trusted. No, every you know, anyone in the villain role <laughs> yeah, it's a funny scene because I, I think as a you know I'm thinking about it as a as a movie viewer, we end up identifying with both the hero and the villain, which is an unusual thing because as a, we identify with Dirty Harry, it's like yeah, I I, I want to you know get this guy, and with the villain also, I just want to know. I've never thought about that way, but so that that final scene is really about uh, he he uh, he didn't have to call that option. <laughs> no, no, he did it. He did it. You know, he, he <laughs> just said, you know what? Uh, let, let let's assume five because uh, the cost of assuming you know the cost of assuming five and being wrong is way different than the cost of assuming <laughs> six and being wrong. But he can't wait. He can't live with the uncertainty. He needs to know. Oh my gosh, I loved that last part at the end. 
I debated on cutting it because Dirty Harry and Black Shoals option theory seemed a little bit off topic from the MIT beer game. Uh, but wow, these topics actually came up in the discussion from NPR Planet Money about how markets can be an incredibly efficient and accurate signal about supply and demand and how it can actually increase the number of people benefiting from a system. Okay, on the next episode of The Ideal Cast, I am so delighted that I have on Mike Nygaard, currently VP of Enterprise Architecture and Platform Development at Sabre, the software and technology company at the heart of the business of travel, who pioneered travel reservation and bookings in the 1970s. It is difficult for me to overstate how much Mike Nygaard has influenced my life. I believe his seminal book, Release It, is one of the most important books in our field. His work has pioneered patterns that we're all now so familiar with, such as circuit breakers, bulkhead, chaos engineering, and so much more. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Mike Nygaard at the Velocity Conference in 2013, he introduced me to Clojure, the programming language which reintroduced the joy of programming back into my life some years later. He is one of the best people I can think of to talk about software architecture, and I learned so much from him about the structure and dynamics of bad software architectures and great architectures, as well as how to create them. See you then.